is Murder, She Told, true crime stories from Maine, New England, and small-town USA. I'm Kristen Zevey. You can connect with me at MurderSheTold.com or on Instagram at MurderSheToldPodcast. John Foote came to the auction intending to take photos for his grandmother. She had lived at the house when she was 12 years old, and John wanted to remind her of forgotten times, when she danced around the 119-acre property and fed her horses. But when he arrived, all notions of this kind gesture were immediately forgotten. The property was in shambles, and any photo he might take would only taint her memories. Epping, a farm town in New Hampshire of 26.2 square miles is so small that you would need less than a half gallon of gas to drive through its European-style buildings. It has picturesque views of vast acres of farmlands and forest, and with only 7,000 residents, if you live there long enough, there's a chance that people will know your name. Neighbors driving by the estate, who once marveled at the Epping home, were now aghast. The Cape-style piece of property was considered a luxury home. The house had a gabled roof with a large chimney right at the center. Views from upstairs windows revealed the vast acres of grass surrounding it. It seemed like a dream home for couples to raise their kids on a farm. Strange then that most of the attendees weren't bidders, but curious onlookers. Who would buy the ruins of the Labar estate? Sergeant Sean Gallagher received a panicky call on February 24, 2006 at the Epping Police Department. A voice shook at the end of the line. Carolyn Lodge was worried about her son after he left his home in Wilmington, Massachusetts with an Epping resident, Sheila Labar. She said her son had a learning disability and hoped that the sergeant would make sure he was all right. In police parlance, a wellness check, Sean shook his head. He knew Sheila. He had dealt with her about two dozen times since 1995. He remembered breaking up several domestic disputes with various boyfriends. This would be just another encounter with her. Carolyn had reported him missing, and after confirming that her son, Kenneth, was listed in the National Crime Information Center database, Sean and Detective Richard Cody drove their cruiser to Sheila's home on Red Oak Hill Road to find Kenneth. The dirt road opened up to sprawling acres of land, including a large home and a barn. A fence, gate, and barbed wire blocked the entrance to the home. A no trespassing sign was nailed to the tree with the words, you are being videotaped, written underneath. Sean and Richard climbed through and reached the front door, but Sheila wouldn't open it. Instead, she spoke with them through her window. Sean asked if Kenneth was inside and she responded with a curt no. The officer asked again, this time emphasizing that he was required to complete a wellness check on Kenneth. Sheila's answer changed. She finally admitted that he was there. Can we see Kenneth? He asked. Sheila refused. She told the officer that Kenneth was naked and taking a warm bath. For a moment, there was silence behind the window. The officers weren't going away. Sheila left and returned with Kenneth, bringing him to the front door for them to examine. Kenneth wore nothing but blue jeans, and despite Sheila saying that he was taking a bath, nothing seemed unusual. 
The young man looked fine to Sean, and he believed that he was there on his own free will. After being asked to leave the farm, Sean and Richard drove away, leaving Kenneth behind at Sheila's house. Kenneth County was 24 years old and six feet tall, with prominent eyebrows and a beaming smile. I've never ever seen him not smiling, said Kenneth's mother, Carolyn, who admitted that even when she was upset with him, she could never stay mad. Kenneth was an athletic kid. He played baseball and loved attending games with his dad. He enjoyed the smell of fresh cut grass and salty warm pretzels and was energized by the loud chants of the crowd. His drink of choice was grape soda. Kenneth played hockey and benefited because his dad coached the game. Hockey season marked the beginning of autumn, a prelude to Kenneth's favorite time of year. On Thanksgiving Day, he would begin decorating his little cherry-colored tree with colorful lights. It lacked greenery, but he saw potential in his Charlie Brown Christmas tree. Kenneth lived for Christmas morning, jumping out of bed at daybreak and running downstairs to tear through the wrapping paper that were tucked and creased and folded and taped around a host of waiting presents. Even the occasional paper cut didn't slow him down. Then Carolyn's little boy grew up, Kenneth was mesmerized by the characters on screen in old army and Western films. There was something so fascinating about being a hero that saves the day. Kenneth wanted nothing more than to join the army. Carolyn wasn't ready to let Kenneth leave home and become independent. She was afraid for him. She feared the kind of people he would meet. But despite her apprehension, as soon as he graduated high school, he enlisted. He started basic training at Fort Benning in Georgia but training didn't last long. He couldn't complete the sit-up portion of basic training and received a medical discharge and returned home to Balearica, Massachusetts, crushed and downtrodden. He took a job at the car wash where he was described as a simple, dedicated worker, but he struggled with basic paperwork. Moving out of his childhood home in January 2006 at 24, Kenneth was trying his hand at independent living. He moved into a house just a few miles away in Wilmington, Massachusetts, with a roommate. Even with his newfound freedom, Carolyn continued to check up on Kenneth. She periodically visited him at work, and they spoke on the phone daily. Kenneth was doing well. He was responsible. His roommate, Eric, remembered that after a long day's work, Kenneth would call the bank and check his balance, and then his cell phone carrier to see how many minutes he had remaining. He was an easygoing roommate who was on top of everything. But underneath his enthusiasm, Kenneth was lonely. Prior to meeting Sheila, he had attempted suicide. He wanted companionship, something more than his mother's love. Sheila Labar lived on the big farm at the end of the street. She was often seen on the road in her silver Mercedes, her dyed blonde locks moving in the breeze. She was known to be very outspoken and had an ill temper. She also had a habit of using guns to intimidate. But Sheila could be quite charming, and that seemed to be the key to getting whatever she wanted. Sheila wasn't originally from Epping. She adopted her southern charm from her hometown of Fort Payne, Alabama. She even coined her own nickname, Firecracker, not only because she was a 4th of July baby, but because it suited her volatile personality. Sheila grew up in a Baptist family with five siblings, three brothers and two sisters. Her father, Manuel Bailey, worked for the state highway department as an equipment operator, and her mother, Ruby, was a housekeeper. 
Sheila and her father had some issues. He would come home belligerently drunk on the weekends from time to time, and he could become quite violent. During one incident, he overturned the cast iron stove the family used to heat the home and tried to topple the refrigerator. When it proved too heavy, he opened its door and began tossing food across the kitchen. The incident escalated as the family appeared, and he started throwing the food at them. They fled to the garage, huddled in the car, and locked the doors, and started the engine when their father appeared. He wound up as though to strike the driver's side window, but didn't realize that it was already down. As he threw the punch, he toppled half into the car completely off balance. His wife and two children fled on foot into a nearby cornfield. As they were escaping, he picked up a can of antifreeze and chucked it at Sheila, who was only six at the time, being rushed away from the house by her mother into the night. Sheila covered her face and the can struck her fingers, leaving a scar that would last a lifetime. They hid out in a cornfield on the edge of the property as Manuel stamped around trying to find them. When he gave up, they walked five miles in the night to stay with family while their father sobered. In addition to the physical abuse, Sheila and her sister both said that they had been molested by their father in childhood. Despite the adversity, at 18, she graduated from Fort Payne High School and was optimistic about her future. Growing up as the youngest of six, Sheila wanted to stand out somehow. She wanted to be a star. She loved singing and she prided herself on her looks. She dreamt of being a country musician or a model. People thought she was beautiful with long brown locks and a youthful glow. She used her looks to compete in beauty pageants and win over the affections of men. In March of 2006, a week or two after the wellness check for Kenneth, Sean and Richard, the two police officers who went to Sheila's home, received a call from someone at Walmart who explained that there was a person being disruptive inside the store. The men hopped into their cruiser and drove down to the Epping Walmart. When they arrived, they found Kenneth County inside. But he didn't look the same as he did a month prior, hunched over with gashes covering his face and hands. His face was somewhat obscured by a fuzzy black hat, and his right hand was so swollen that he could barely move it. Sitting inside the shopping basket were two five-gallon yellow diesel containers. Before Sean and Richard could get a question out, Sheila appeared, looming over him. She told the sergeant and the detective that he was fine, that his wounds were just the result of a car accident and it was nothing to worry about. She told them that Kenneth was sitting in the wheelchair as a joke. When Richard began speaking to Kenneth, he was cut off abruptly by Sheila, who told him not to talk to Kenneth. She screamed at him, commanding him not to answer a single question. This wasn't the first time Sheila had caused a scene inside the store. She had shopped there with Kenneth weeks prior, and she claimed that her husband, Kenneth, had been attacked by a woman in the store. She even yelled at the employees and threatened to sue. The officers followed Kenneth and Sheila to her truck parked in the front of the store. Kenneth stumbled as he walked, so Sheila picked him up and carried him to her truck, helping him inside. Despite the wounds and mistreatment, the two officers couldn't help Kenneth. He was 24 years old. They hoped that if he was in real trouble, he would tell them. Sheila had a way with men. There was something classy about the woman in red. She was married three times, 
plus one quasi-legal common-law marriage, but each one only lasted a short time. John Baxter, her first husband, who was 19 at the time they got married, was a single father living in Fort Payne, Alabama. Sheila, at 23, may have seemed like she had the potential to be a good mother and wife. The two only dated a month before getting married on New Year's Eve in 1981. John really wanted this marriage to work out. He'd already gone through the heartbreak of a divorce, but it only took six weeks for things to take a turn. Sheila immediately regretted marrying into their family. She didn't like playing the role of a mother and wife. Her dream was to be an artist. She resented the two as a result and took out her anger on his daughter, Wendy. After coming home from work, John discovered Wendy was locked up in a room the size of a closet. Sheila was kind enough to give her a pot for the bathroom. If Wendy came out, Sheila would beat her and break her toys. She threatened, If you ever tell your daddy, I will kill you and your daddy both. Wendy didn't have to say anything. John figured it out on his own. According to Kevin Flynn, author of the book Wicked Intentions, Wendy said that the last thing she remembered about Sheila was her father pushing her out of the way to take Wendy out of the house. John left Sheila six weeks after their marriage, and their divorce was finalized a year later. Since Sheila was no longer being financially supported by John, she took up a job at a fast food burger joint. She needed something to pay the bills. And it didn't take long for Sheila to become romantically involved with Ronnie Jennings, a co-worker whose mother owned the burger joint. Ronnie was very different from John. He didn't have any kids, and he dated around. After lending Sheila a ride home one evening, she became completely enamored with him. They lived recklessly, skipping work and smoking weed. Sheila wanted Ronnie to be hers, but Ronnie wasn't interested in marriage. But despite his apprehensions, after finalizing her divorce, Sheila convinced Ronnie to commit. They got married and the couple moved to Chattanooga. Almost immediately, Ronnie realized he made a mistake. As soon as they left their wedding ceremony, Sheila began sobbing, saying they never should have gotten married. Sheila had intense mood swings that repeatedly turned violent, the kind that would keep Ronnie up all night. On one occasion, he was afraid that she would kill him with a pair of scissors. The couple's fighting seemed to worsen. Sheila caused a scene at a restaurant Ronnie was working at. He was in the back, cooking up burgers and sipping on a beer. Suddenly, Sheila barged into the kitchen, throwing a tantrum. She screamed at him, claiming he was cheating on her, but Ronnie seemed unfazed. He took a sip of his drink and said he'd sleep with whoever he pleased. Sheila cried out, I'll show you how bad I want out of this marriage. She reached for a bottle of red pills from her purse and shook them in his face. Popping the cap off, she swallowed every single one. The pills went down smoothly and she stormed off, returning to her car and driving away. The roads in front of Sheila turned into an abstract painting. Everything seemed to blur together and Sheila's eyes were open, but she wasn't awake. She crashed the car and was found unconscious. Her sister, Lynn, rushed to the hospital and watched a group of medical professionals pump red bile from Sheila's stomach. Sheila was alive, but comatose. A day later, Sheila was transferred to another hospital to be seen by a specialist. She remained in a coma for eight days. When she woke up, 
she found herself in a psychiatric ward for attempted suicide. She called her sister up, crying and begging to get her out of that horrible place. She also told her sister about a strange out-of-body experience. She said she was floating down the hallway and men in white were waiting for her at the end. She reached a blinding light and all was calm. She wasn't meant to be there yet and the men sent Sheila back to find her purpose. After 30 days, Sheila was released from the psychiatric ward. Despite the fact that Sheila believed she was in good mental health, her husband disagreed. Ronnie called her unbalanced. After a four-year roller coaster, Ronnie had had enough and he called off the marriage. Nearly 20 years later, Bruce Allen, Sheila's neighbor, recalled seeing numerous men on the Epping farm, often under the auspices of being workers. She particularly sought out the vulnerable. In 2004, she was accused of stalking her neighbor after he refused her offer of an evening of alcohol, drugs, and sex. She followed him into the woods twice and threatened him with her rifle. She told me how she picked out ones she liked and would bring them home, said Bruce, in regards to how she chose her men. Sheila didn't take the usual dating routes to meet new men. She made attempts to seduce the delivery men that came to her door, sometimes answering it wearing nothing but a fur coat. When companies stopped delivering to her home, she would go after the handyman or a plumber on a service call. She sought men out at homeless shelters or off the street dangling the carrot of living on a sprawling, idyllic horse farm in the countryside, a welcome respite from the austere and crowded government housing or the brutal living conditions of the homeless who are constantly shuffled between different urban nooks and crannies. Sheila was a routine visitor of Telemates, a telephone dating service where callers would create a voicemail describing themselves. Hopeful strangers could leave messages for singles they liked. Sheila received numerous messages from assertive and persistent men who wanted her, but she ignored those messages and waited for the lonesome and the desperate. Long nights were spent engaging in phone sex with hopeful strangers, and one of those men was Kenneth County. While watching late-night television in January of 2006, a commercial popped up that piqued Kenneth's interest the cure of feeling single and alone, telemates. When Kenneth called the number, Sheila was on the other line. She indulged Kenneth, chatting with him and engaging in explicit sexual conversations. Kenneth was hooked on Sheila. Kenneth and Sheila planned a Valentine's date on February 14, 2006. The first date would be at the Ashworth by the Sea Hotel in Hampton, New Hampshire a small, charming hotel that overlooks the beach. Kenneth arrived promptly and sat patiently at the bar. The room was decorated with pink and red hearts. Love was in the air. As the hour hand on the clock ticked by, Kenneth could have left and he never would have met Sheila. But just as hope was all but extinguished, she arrived. Sheila was a force. She was assertive and charming. Kenneth didn't have a lot of experience with girls, but he knew that none of them had been like Sheila. They ended up leaving the hotel to have sex in Sheila's car. Sheila seduced him with the promise of a new life. Kenneth boasted to his brother about his new girlfriend. Sheila owned her own company and was rich. She drove around in a fancy car and practically lived in a mansion. 
four days after their first date, Kenneth left his home in Wilmington, Massachusetts. He told his roommate he'd only be gone for the weekend. His roommate was worried when Kenneth didn't come home. It was unusual for him to leave for so long. When he called him up asking when he'd be back, Kenneth couldn't give him a clear answer. Instead, Sheila grabbed the phone from Kenneth and began an argument. She wanted him to stop calling her new boyfriend. This was the last time his roommate ever talked to him. And on the 21st of February, Kenneth's next workday at the car wash, he didn't show. On the day Kenneth told his roommate he was leaving, Sheila was parked outside of his home. She promised him a new start, a better job, a relationship, and even a new name, Adam Olympian Labar. But her promises were just a mirage. A month after the initial welfare check on March 22nd, Sergeant Sean Gallagher answered the department's phone to Kenneth's panicked mother. Sheila had told her that Kenneth left the house and that she hadn't seen him in a few days. But Kenneth wasn't somebody who could just take care of himself. Kenneth was intellectually disabled, and if he were alone, he would have called his family. Sean called Sheila repeatedly, but there was no answer. He left her messages to no response. But two days later, in the middle of the night, Sean's phone rang. It was Sheila, assuring him that Kenneth no longer lived with her. After that, Sean could hear the white noise of a tape recorder, and Sheila's recorded voice came through the line. It sounded eerily distant and matter-of-fact, and it began with a strange pronouncement that she was a, quote, justice of the peace in New Hampshire. Then there was a pause. Sheila's voice then changed, and her voice was accusatory, asking questions about raping children. Sean had to listen hard, but just over the static, he could make out Kenneth's soft, muddled voice, responding with a yes to each of her questions. Sheila listed the names of Kenneth's family members, and he confessed to raping nieces, step-siblings, and other young relatives. Again, he let out a soft yes when Sheila asked if he'd molested them. Then a frightening heaving sound began, like an animal in distress. Sheila could be heard shushing Kenneth, telling him to cut the act. For a long moment, there was quiet on the tape. More strange sounds broke the silence, guttural coughing and gagging. That's when Sheila began speaking again on the recording. Kenneth County is now faking that he's throwing up. Kenneth County is now faking that he fainted. Sheila then broke up the narration by crying hysterically on the tape, at one point wailing, why, over and over again, and then silence. After the tape ended abruptly, Sheila hung up on the sergeant without another word. Sean was confused. Nothing about the call made sense. Why did Sheila call him at one o'clock in the morning to play a recording of herself implicating Kenneth in a string of sex crimes against his family? The following evening, Sean and Richard went back to Sheila's farm, searching for answers. They were checking to see if Kenneth had actually left her residence. They arrived to find the gate closed. The sun had already set and the lights were off in the quiet farmhouse. The detective spotted a burnt mattress, as well as a separate burn pile in Sheila's front yard. A wooden chair faced the burn pit. Sean shined his flashlight over to the pile. And there, resting on top, was a knife handle with a melted blade, tree limb clippers, a burnt chair, 
and a piece of bone covered in flesh. It was stomach-turning. If this bone belonged to Kenneth, could he have done something more to stop it? He had seen Kenneth badly beaten inside that Walmart. Could he have done something then? Sean called for assistance. He knocked on the front door to confront Sheila as a third officer arrived. They began banging on all sides of the house, but still no one answered. Sean kicked in the front door as Sheila arrived from behind the gate. Again, she insisted that Kenneth wasn't there, that he had left a while ago. Sheila happily gave the men a tour of her home. They looked around, checking every room for signs of Kenneth. All they found were a pair of his sneakers that she refused to let them take. Then Richard asked her about the bone. Could have easily been a bone of an animal. She had horses and hundreds of rabbits running around her farm. Agitated, she answered, either a rabbit or a pedophile. The morning after, they obtained a search warrant and returned to Sheila's farm. When Sheila was questioned about Kenneth's whereabouts, she simply responded, in the bag. Police scoured the burn piles looking for any evidence to examine. Hidden underneath the pile of ash and dirt was a wrinkled Walmart bag, perhaps the one that Sheila was referencing. Police also asked if it was possible that she burned Kenneth. Her response? There was a chance that he might have fallen into the fire. Investigators, though confident that they had the right person, did not yet have enough to charge Sheila with the murder of Kenneth. In the meantime, Sheila fled Epping. The following day, Sheila stood in front of her car watching people go in and out of a local pet shop. She held a box with three of her rabbits. Brother and sister, Donald and Amy, walked around the shop looking for a pet to take home. Sheila approached them with one of her rabbits. The kids were immediately taken with the bunny, which made Sheila's pitch easy. She offered them $100 to take care of her rabbits, Little Satin, Sapphire, and Snookster. Donald and Amy didn't even hesitate. They asked Sheila to show them the other bunnies, so she took them out to her car. The children were overjoyed that they would be bringing not one, but three pets home. Sheila knew it would be a lot for them to carry on their walk home, so she offered the pair a ride. Pam Paquin was surprised to see her children come home with three rabbits and a new friend. Sheila introduced herself, explaining that she'd given Donald and Amy money to take her rabbits and bought them dinner. Sheila seemed generous, and as they talked more, the conversation flowed. Sheila was charming and chatty. She told them stories about her bad relationships and why she had to leave her last boyfriend. The family enjoyed Sheila's company and asked her to stay a while. While gathered around the living room to watch TV, Pam put on the evening news. The broadcast was about Kenneth County. Sheila panicked and screamed. The news anchor spoke about a missing man who'd been living on a farm in Epping owned by one Sheila Labar. The anchor continued, saying that although the farm wasn't yet considered a crime scene, investigators were searching for evidence. Pam asked Sheila about the report, but Sheila avoided the questions and began crying. Pam asked again. I don't know where he is, and now everyone's going to think I killed him. Sheila admitted to Pam that Adam, her nickname for Kenneth, was her boyfriend, and that he'd changed his name after he moved in with her because he wanted a fresh start. Sheila told him how sick Adam was, that he was a pedophile. After Sheila said she discovered this, they started having issues, and he packed up his stuff and left. Sheila insisted she had nothing to do with Adam's disappearance, 
and Pam believed her. The following day, Pam and her friend Sandra, who was staying at the house, drove Sheila to an attorney's office. She was on edge about the Kenneth situation and figured that seeking legal help would help her anxiety. The two friends waited in the car while Sheila met with a lawyer. He walked Sheila through her options, explaining that there was a possibility of bail depending on the murder charge. They wanted $60,000 to take her case. Sheila stormed out of the building, frantic and in a rush to find a bank. She refused to pay that much for an attorney and began feeling paranoid about her finances. In Sheila's mind, she was innocent. This was all a setup by the police and no money-hungry attorney was going to fleece her. Sheila took out almost $86,000 from the bank, $50,000 in a cashier's check and the rest in cash. One of the bank tellers had picked up the phone and Sheila assumed they were calling police. She got in Pam's car and told her to drive fast. Even though Pam had only known Sheila for a day, she obeyed her orders. In the car, Sheila began sobbing about her horses. She didn't know who was going to take care of them and believed that the police would just let them die. She needed to go back to the farm. Before returning to Epping, they pulled into a bank looking for a notary. Sheila felt she needed to get everything in order just in case anything were to happen in the next few days. While at the bank, Sheila wrote out a bill of sale for the horses to present to Pam. The three women drove down the winding roads that led to Sheila's farm. Pam and Sandra had fantasized about what Sheila's farm looked like from the story she told them. They envisioned her horses galloping in the fresh-cut grass, the rabbits hopping around in front of her grand home that neither Pam nor Sandra could afford. But this farm was something out of a Tim Burton movie. The home was surrounded by dirt, and any visible patches of greenery were yellow. The rabbits hopped around, but they were covered in mud and looked unfed. The gate was covered in yellow tape. This is how Sheila had actually lived. Sheila watched from the passenger seat as a dozen police officers searched the farm. As she looked out the window, a trailer with her five caramel-colored horses drove slowly past. Sheila panicked and Pam got out of the car, running towards the trailer. Pam told the man behind the wheel that the horses were hers and the man asked her if her name was Sheila Labar, but Pam shook her head and showed him the bill of sale. The man told them that the horses had been seized by the police department and she would have to claim them there. Sheila told Pam and Sandra to go without her. As soon as Pam got back to her car, the man driving the horses called Epping's dispatch. He reported the silver car was on its way to the police station and gave the operator the license plate number. Pam and Sandra dropped Sheila off at a cemetery where she could hide behind tombstones. They figured that nobody would look for her in a graveyard. A few days later, on March 28th, Pam and Sandra pulled into the parking lot of the police station. New Hampshire State Police Trooper Jill Rocky and Assistant Attorney General Peter Odom had been expecting them. When Pam and Sandra walked in, they were guided into Jill's office. Jill asked questions about Sheila. Pam and Sandra told the officer that they dropped Sheila off, but they wouldn't tell her where. The assistant AG asked if Sheila thought they would arrest her and explained that they thought she was missing. They just wanted to know if she could help them find Kenneth. Pam and Sandra were surprised by the news. They'd been running around all day to help their new friend, and she wasn't in any trouble. Pam inquired about the horses, and Peter looked at the bill of sale. 
he told Pam that she could have the horses back in a few weeks. When they returned to the cemetery to deliver the news that Sheila wasn't being arrested, Sheila's reaction was the opposite of what they were expecting. She began hyperventilating and asked for Pam's keys. She demanded they get in the car. Sheila drove faster than the speed limit, pushing hard on the accelerator while driving through gravel roads. She was in a hurry to get out of Epping and told the women the police were just trying to trick her. Sheila thought she was in the clear, but a car pulled in front of them, moving slowly. Another car pulled up behind and boxed them in, forcing Sheila to pull over. Two officers stepped out of each car, but when they searched Sheila, they found nothing and decided to bring her back to the station for questioning. Sheila was there for seven hours and was interrogated about Kenneth County, but she didn't admit to anything. Without a confession and with no evidence against her, the officers had to let her go until they found something that linked her with Kenneth's disappearance. On April 1st, 2006, five days after Sheila was released, she walked by a newspaper stand. On the front page of the paper was her face, framed by her blonde hair, her eyes smudged with eyeliner and a smirk on her face. It was her DMV photo, one of her more recent pictures. The headline above the photo read, Woman Wanted in Killing, Burning. There was now enough evidence to issue an arrest warrant, and Sheila was on the run again. Join me next week as we continue the Sheila Labar story. I want to thank you so much for listening. I'm so grateful that you chose to tune in, and I couldn't be here without you. Thank you. If you want to support the show, there's a link in the show notes with options. Telling a friend about the show or leaving a review are some of the best ways to support an indie podcast. A detailed source listing can be found on the website at MurderSheTold.com. This episode was written by Zoe Stockwell. Special thanks to Byron Willis for his research and writing support and to Delphi Borich for her research support. If you have a story suggestion or a correction, feel free to reach out at hello at MurderSheTold.com. My only hope is that I've honored your stories by keeping the names of your family and friends alive. I'm Kristen Seavey, and this is Murder, She Told. Thank you for listening. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch, involved in a then-unheard-of secret organization called the Illuminati, and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes. <laughs>